Before we share in God's word, how about we say a prayer? Father, help us. Help us to cherish your word, knowing that your word gives us life. Your word reveals our salvation, and your word helps us draw near to you. Work through us as we read your word together. Amen. Amen. Isn't it just so frustrating when you have those friends that just get away with things? Or that sibling especially? Those ones that do the wrong thing all the time, and they just somehow never get caught. So it might be a friend who just crosses the, crosses the road in the wrong place. Or it could be just someone texting while they're driving. Or it could just be that, that slobby little brother or sister who just leaves a mess everywhere and somehow doesn't get told off. Those things might not seem like they're much, especially when you haven't been dealing with the consequences for a long time. But the thing is, it's still wrong. And it's easy to keep doing the wrong thing especially when there are no consequences. And so it's a little bit like a friend of mine. And for the sake of the story, we're going to call him Thomas. So Thomas is absolutely obsessed with speeding. I don't know what it is about Thomas, but he doesn't know how to drive slow. Slow doesn't appear in his dictionary. I don't know if it's like he's, he's an adrenaline junkie or he's got a fragile masculinity and he's got to prove himself. I'm not sure. I'm not judging. But he's absolutely compulsive and he's... Just, he can't go slow. He just goes fast all the time. And we're always telling him, Thomas, you're going to get caught. You're gonna, something's bad's going to happen. You're going to flip the car. You're going to hit someone and hurt someone and ruin their life. And we keep warning him that it's stupid. But for somehow, somehow, for eight years, he's just gotten away with it. No tickets, no accidents. And he's absolutely numb to it. He doesn't really care because he thinks he's too smart to get caught. And it's true. He has a supernatural sense for stopping when he sees a Holden Commodore or a Ford Falcon. He just knows when it's a cop. And he knows when it's not a cop. He just knows when to brake. And I've been in the car where he's just suddenly rammed the brakes when he's going 160 because there's a speed camera. It just doesn't scare him. It's just normal for him. And no matter what we say, he won't stop. We've tried even appealing with the Bible. Hey, bro. The Bible says, obey the governments, obey your authorities, but he just, he doesn't care anymore. He's convinced that it's okay to drive like this, and he probably doesn't even think he's sinning. Isn't it just so frustrating hearing those people? They just get to do whatever they want, and they keep doing whatever they want, and they get away with doing the wrong thing? But the thing is, we're actually all the same. We're all guilty of doing the wrong thing, and we're all guilty of getting away with it. You know, some of us here don't even put the toilet seat down. (laughs) But seriously, we're all guilty of doing the wrong thing and getting away with it. Whether it's gossiping or complaining, judging, lying, we all do it, right? And so, as we've been looking at 2 Kings, in 2 Kings 17, we actually see Israel is just as bad as this. Or, should I say, even worse than this. For so long, 200 years, they've gotten used to doing the wrong thing. Evil kings, evil practices, idolatry of every sort. And it's even become so normal that when we're working through the book, it's like, ah, yeah, this King Ahaz, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, yeah, this King Pekah, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. They, they should basically call the book the book of the evil kings because that's what it's practically filled with. And so it's been 200 years now, 200 years of them worshipping Jeroboam's idols. 
they're just used to it now. And what's even crazier is that we fall into the trap now as we're reading it and we think, yeah, it's not too bad. It's normal now. We're used to seeing it again and again in this book. But here in 2 Kings 17, we're going to see what comes of continuing in wickedness. We see what happens to Israel after generation and generation of disobedience. So if you haven't already, could you please keep your Bibles open to page 596 as we read through the passage bit by bit. So I'm going to highlight for you guys three parts in the passage. So the first part, we're going to call it judgment finally came. There's a new king, and his name is Hosea. He's evil, but he's not as evil as the other kings, but he's still evil. So read with me in verse 1. Verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea son of Elah became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So he's not as evil as the other kings, but it's what happens next that really stands out. In this short paragraph, three years of things happen. Three entire years of things happen. And here's what happens. The king of Assyria, he takes offense to Hosea's friendliness to Egypt. He lays siege to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel at the time. And after surrounding the the land for three years, three long years of blocking all trade, all travel or access to the land, they finally capture Hosea and they spread the people across the land. So in that, Israel is no longer a nation, no longer a people, and they're no longer a country. Israel is completely destroyed. Read with me from verse 3. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, and in the Habor River, and in the town of Medes. Isn't it just so anticlimactic? Israel's completely destroyed, completely shattered, and banished across all the land of Assyria, and there is no more Israel left. It's completely gone. Israel is left with nothing, and it all just happens in one paragraph. In one fell swoop, Shalmaneser, the king of Israel, has destroyed, the king of Assyria has destroyed Israel. It's quite shocking, actually, because what about God's promises? He promised a land of milk and honey, this land of promise and all that they had desired. They were wandering the wilderness for so long and now completely destroyed as a nation, left to assimilate with the rest of the Assyrian population. And it's pretty much described in five heartless sentences. But the thing is, I think there's a really good reason why it's so brief. There's a reason why 
the writer doesn't spend time describing the historical intricacies. There's the reason why we don't see the military strategy behind destroying Israel. There's a reason why we don't see how much Israel suffered when they were struggling in the siege. And I think the, the reason why the, the writer doesn't do this is because the how isn't as important as the why. Why did it happen? Why would God allow this? Why would God remove them from the land that he had promised to them? Why, after 200 years, does God finally judge Israel? And so there we see the first part. We see God finally judge Israel. And then we move into the second part. And that's the why. So why judgment finally came. And it's because... They idolized. They commit idolatry. Let's take a look at verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. It's simple. It's straightforward. The reason why God destroyed Israel was because they had worshipped other gods. They didn't follow God as their one and only God. For generation and generation, they were doing more and more wicked deeds. It wasn't just another evil king. It wasn't just another evil generation. It wasn't just another god that they worshipped. It wasn't just one more sin. And it wasn't just another year out of the 200 years of idolatry. No. All this wickedness was deserving of being punished by God. The God who had taken them out of Egypt and taken them and freed them from slavery from God, with God. And they had forgotten this God who had freed them. The God who had protected them from all the evil nations was the God that they no longer gave worship to. They had pretty much spat in the face of God by following all these evil nations and giving worship to all the other gods. By killing their own children to gain favor by these worthless blind idols when God himself had provided for them, had protected them, and he had even revealed himself to them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. But no, they didn't think that the one true living God was enough for them. Read with me from verse 9. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burnt incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered you through my servants and prophets. Verse 14. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes that he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. 
They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So God's people, God's chosen people had defied him. They, def- they disobeyed him. And for many generations, God continued to bear with their sins, but still they wouldn't turn away. And finally, finally, judgment came. Finally, they have dealt with the consequences of what they have done. They presumed that if they persisted in their ways, nothing would change. They presumed the forbearance of God. They, they presumed that he would be patient with them. They presumed their safety, and they learned the hard way that God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. And we have seen the warnings throughout the book of Kings to turn back to God. They haven't just been a tap on the wrist. These warnings have been from God as a life raft to these drowning people. They've been a scolding for playing too close to the, the hot stove. Israel kept playing with the fire, and they got burnt. After generations of patience, God has shown the full weight of what they deserve. Israel finally has to deal with the consequences of their actions. God has finally judged Israel. They've been pushing themselves away from God, and God has finally allowed them to be removed from his presence. They didn't even want God. And now they get to see what it's like to not have God. Removed from the land that God had promised. Unprotected from the nations that God had kept them safe from. Israel are finally judged for their sin. Reading from verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence, as he had warned through all his servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from the homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are, there, they are still there. And so there we go with the second part. Why was Israel destroyed? Why Israel, why judgment finally came for Israel. It wasn't because Hosea was hopeless with politics and he made a mistake. It was ultimately because Israel had sinned against the Lord. They had turned to other idols and God had allowed them to face the consequences of their sin. And this is why judgment finally came. And with that, we come to the last part of the passage. After judgment finally came. So we get to see what's left of Israel. It's just a hodgepodge of people put into the country who had no idea about the Lord of Israel, nor the practices they have. And because of their lack of worship to God, God punishes them by killing them with lions. And so what does the king of Assyria resolve to do? 
he sends a priest from Samaria, who was once in a Samaria, and gets the, gets the priest to teach them about what it is like to worship the Lord, to almost appease the God that they have angered, to kind of quieten him. Reading from verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Abba, Hamath, and Sevavim, and settled them into the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of the country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of, these, one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. As it just like Israel, the nations just worship God, but they worship God with all their other gods. Some sacrificing their kids in the fire. So these nations just don't look better or worse than Israel, right? Isn't it just sad that we can look at God's holy people and they're just no different to these new people occupying the land who actually have no idea who God is? And just like Israel, these foreigners, they ignore God's warnings and they forget that it was God who would deliver them from the enemies. And they got comfortable. They got comfortable with doing the wrong thing. They got used to doing the wrong thing. Look down with me at verse 29. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several town where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The people from Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, those from Kutha made Nergal, and those from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephavites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and Anemalek, the gods of Sephavim. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines of the high place. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nation from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the law, to decrees and regulations, the Lord's commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israels, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshipping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. And that's what we see is left of Israel. Just a bunch of foreigners living pretty much the same as Israel themselves. And so there we have that third part of the passage. What comes 
after judgment finally came. So if we're just to backtrack a little and we just look again at 2 Kings 17, what have we seen? So we've seen three distinct parts in the passage. So part one, how judgment finally came. Israel is sieged and in three years the country is broken and split across Assyria. Part two, why judgment finally came. They disobeyed God, they faced the consequences for their own wickedness. And part three, after judgment finally came, there are foreigners now living in the land, worshipping their own God, while worshipping the God. No different from Israel before them. And after looking at the passage, it makes you wonder, where does that leave us? Well, we've seen Israel destroyed for their own wickedness. They were warned, but they continued to do the wrong thing. And they faced the consequences. God dealt with them severely. And the thing is, Israel's situation is actually a lot more like ours than we'd like to think. For us, there's a coming day of judgment for us as well. The New Testament talks about it. There's some colorful language about the day of destruction. And we need to know that judgment is finally coming. And that means that there are consequences for the way that we live. There are consequences for the way, for the things that we trust in. We see this especially in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, which you can find in your service program. It reads, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So let me just read the first five words again. For we must all appear. So there's all, no exceptions. For every single good deed and every bad deed, all of us and all of it will be judged. And there is nothing hidden from God. Everything we've done, even the slightest of wrong intentions, are still terrible. And all of it will be judged. And so going back to the story of my friend Thomas, who really loved speeding, the good news for us, not for him, is that he finally got caught speeding through a red light. He missed, completely misjudged his ability, and his license has been suspended for three months. So that's three months that he can't speed around. After warning him for many years, he's finally faltered. He continued in his way, but he met his destruction. He met the destruction of his license for three months. But lucky for him, it's only three months. He can continue driving, being stupid, or whatever he wants to do, whatever. But for the coming judgment, it's eternal. It's forever. Everything we do that will be deemed good and bad will be judged forever. But it's so easy still to live like judgment won't come. You know, being like Thomas, getting used to doing the same thing, thinking that nothing will change. We kind of expect the same as Israel, don't we? That things will just keep going as they are. That the sun will rise tomorrow, that the trains will come in the morning, but probably late. So then what difference does it make if we know that judgment is coming for us? What difference does it have on our sin that we keep doing? What difference does it make 
for the way that we spend our money? What difference does it have in the way that we interact with our non-Christian friends and colleagues and family members? Friends, I don't think we can live the same if judgment is truly coming. And judgment will come, as we have seen in the Bible. We've seen with Israel that nothing slips past God. None of it. And yet the things that we do have eternal consequences. I think what it means is that we can't get comfortable with the way that things are. We can't just get used to our sin anymore. We can't just keep justifying the things that we keep doing in our lives that disobey God and expect everything to be okay. Because God's final judgment will come. And all of it, all that we have done will be revealed on that day. And so I think we need to keep it at the forefront of our minds and let it truly shape the way that we live. We really need to live like judgment is truly coming, like judgment is finally coming. We can't be like the Israelites. We really can't. Friends, judgment is finally coming. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would heed this warning, that we have learned from Israel that your judgment will come. We pray that we that you would help us live in light of the coming judgment and let this transform us to live fully for you. In Jesus' name, amen.